0: All right, again, if you've got a Bible, that's exactly where we're going to be, page 996. Uh, I'll be pointing you back to Scripture repeatedly, so I would encourage you to make your way there to 2 Timothy chapter 4, page 996 in the black cardback Bibles that are around you. If you don't have a Bible with you, and literally, if you don't have a good Bible, take that one home. You can have it. It's our gift to you. Uh, if this is your first time uh, here at Providence, again, let me say a special welcome to you. What we are doing is we are wrapping up. A twelve-week series through the book of Second Timothy, uh, which is the last book that Paul ever wrote, and so the words that I just read are literally the last written words that we have from the Apostle Paul. Right. So we're finishing that up today, and then next week we will return to a, a series that we've been doing. We've com- through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. We've completed First and Second Samuel. We're halfway through First Kings, and between now. And Thanksgiving, we will finish 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and then we will roll into Advent season. And so that's, you know, where we're going. But by way of wrapping up 2 Timothy, I need to remind you a little bit of where we've been. And so this whole series that we've been for 12 weeks, we've approached it repeatedly as almost like a job description for the disciple. A job description for a Christian. And with any job description, if you've ever gotten one printed out, it always is going to have below the the actual description responsibilities include this and this and this and this. And so very much that's almost how this book, this letter has been laid out. It's a job description of the Christian, of a good disciple, and the responsibilities of a good disciple include this and this and this and this. And And that's how we've approached that the, the book the entire time. And now I want to tease out that, uh, that you know, analogy of a job description just a little bit further because if you keep going with that, eventually you'll get into the hiring process. And if things go well, they'll, they'll hire you, you'll sign a contract, you'll sign a work agreement, whatever it might be. And if it's a larger company, then you will probably be required to attend like a new hire's class or lunch and learn or something like that where they're just going to lay out to you hey here's some things you just need to know about working here so they may be giving you acronyms they may be giving you systems that they use but just things you need to know things you need to understand and just accept kind of deal with this is how we do things here and you just have to know these things these are things you need to live in light of and just always keep in mind Well, in these last couple of verses here from Paul, that's kind of what we get. Things that as a good disciple, we just need to know. Things that as a good disciple, we just need to understand. We need to keep in mind always. And being you know, straight with you, we don't get these things like a direct statement or command of Paul. Because you probably noticed when I read just a minute ago these 14 verses, they're full of like very personal comments, full of people, particular names, and it reads, it's kind of choppy. And so I think it's fitting then this morning that we have kind of a choppy sermon that reflects the text. And so, what I, you know, when I talk about these things that I think. We just need to know as a good disciple, these are really observations of the text, like things as I look at it that I observe and I think are good for us to know, to just understand, to live in light of, to keep in mind always. These are true realities. And so four observations I'm going to give you this morning, all right? There'll be four of them. Every single one of them is going to begin with the phrase, as a good disciple, Okay, so if you want to go ahead and start filling that in, there's going to be four. Every single one of them begins with the phrase, as a good disciple. All right? And so the first one, just something I think we see here and just need to know. And so here we go. Number one, you can write this in your notes, and we're going to spend some time on this one. As a good disciple, your life will be relationally hard. As a good disciple, your life will be relationally hard. Okay, like context here, what's going on is is Paul is on death row, not just on it, but he's getting close to the date of his execution. He's already had an initial hearing and he's waiting for that second hearing when they will actually execute him. That's why he says, hey, get here before the winter. Like, I don't know that I'm going to make it to winter. And the reason that this is going on is like historically what's going on. The year is A.D. 64. And on july nineteenth, which was Friday, was anniversary, july nineteenth, AD sixty-four, the quite possibly insane or demon-possessed Emperor Nero set fire to the city of Rome secretly, all right, so that he could rebuild it, make it prettier, and attach his name to it. And when he did that, he needed to have a scapegoat. He needed to have someone that he could blame the fires on and that everybody could get mad at and take out their rage on. And so he did that on this new religion called Christianity. And so in retaliation retaliation to that, Nero and all of Rome who believed him came unglued against the Christians. And so they would take Christians, I mean, they were arresting them in droves and they would take some of them and they would... Uh, coat them in like freshly skinned animal skins, daub them with blood and put them in amphitheaters. The Colosseum hadn't been constructed yet. Put them in amphitheaters and release wild dogs on them. Others they would take and they would impale them on a pole, set them on fire to light up the entrance to the city at night. You can read this in Roman history. And so Paul is in prison in the midst of this and so he knows my execution is coming. Now, Paul's not going to endure that kind of execution. Does anybody know why? He's a Roman citizen. And so he's not going to endure that kind of execution. He's going to go to trial. He's already been to one, kind of like a grand jury. Now he's going to have another one. And then he'll be executed as a Roman citizen, which is decapitation. And so he knows that's coming. There's no doubt about it. We looked at it last week. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Get here before winter. Like, he knows it's coming. And so Paul is in prison waiting on this. And a lot of times we picture Paul almost like, you know, foot up on a rock, hands on his hips, cape flapping in the wind with a, you know, S on his chest. He's just this superhero of the Bible. People beat me. People, you know, stone me. Uh, I've survived a shipwreck. All this, and I'm still preaching the gospel. And so we often see him that way, but here we find him in a dungeon underground. It's cold, that's why he wants a cloak. Very well advanced in years, scarred up, walking with a limp, probably with a serious eye condition. That's the thorn in the flesh. All that going on, knowing he's about to be executed. And he writes to Timothy, verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon. Why? Why does he write that? Because he's lonely. He's lonely. He's all alone. And see, we're going to get to there throughout the sermon that a good disciple is never alone. But friends, this does not mean that good disciples don't feel lonely. That's just part of being human. We do. What we think is the most important thing about us, but what we feel is not unimportant. And Paul is lonely. And so he says, Timothy, please come to me. No one is here except Luke. I'm all alone. And then he lays out like this litany of what's happened. And that's where these observations, or this particular first observation that our lives are relationally hard comes from as we kind of look through all these names and we see the relational difficulty of Paul. And so let's, let's look at it again. Verse 10 here. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me but all deserted me so do you see that even as you read through that just the relational difficulty that Paul endured that Paul faced in church family it will be the same in our lives you will have friends who desert you you will have friends who will hurt you you will hurt friends you will need to give forgiveness you will need to receive forgiveness from those you have hurt And so we need to know this, not because I'm trying to discourage you this morning, but so that we can walk in life with eyes wide open and not be baffled when these think, what? This is life. I want us to be honest about life. And so I just want to speak the truth and love to you. And so you will have friends who will desert you. Friends you would never dream of. Like you look at this guy Demas here, verse 10. Demas was a heavy hitter. He's mentioned in Philemon along with Mark and Luke as a fellow worker. In Colossians, it reads, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And so Demas is no lightweight. He's been with Paul through lots of ups and downs. But now in Rome, he deserts Paul. Why? It tells us because he's in love with this present world. This doesn't necessarily mean that Demas like verbally denied Jesus and walked away from the faith. But what it does mean is that in that moment he loved the world more than he loved Jesus. He wanted the world more than he wanted Jesus. And so before we villainize Demas too quick is that not what we so often do? We want the world more than we want Jesus is that not the definition of sin, really? Wanting the world more than we want Jesus? I've heard it said, sin's what we do when we're not satisfied in Jesus. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in Jesus. And Demas, I think we need to understand, he, he probably did not want to lose his Christianity. He doesn't like deny Jesus, probably. But it was just going to cost too much to keep it. Paul was about to be beheaded. And so the question before us this morning then is, are we willing to pay the cost? Are we willing to pay the cost? Are we willing to deny ourselves, whatever it may be, deny ourselves and take up our cross daily to die to ourselves over and over and over and over to live for Jesus that's what every Christian is called to not just you know cape flapping in the wind super apostle Are are we willing to pay the cost? Not just when things are easy, but when it gets hard because it will. And one aspect of that is what we're talking about today. Life is relationally hard. It is. But the relational hardness isn't always because of bad things. Sometimes it's because of good things. Because in verse 10 it also talks about Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. In verse 10, Tychicus has gone to Ephesus. This is for the spread of the gospel. This is intentional. These people were sent out as church planters to go start churches or Tychicus to go take care of Ephesus while Timothy was on a furlough sabbatical to come see Paul. But listen, the net result for Paul is still, he's alone. Even though the reason was good, these guys have left for the spread of the gospel. It's still hurt. It's still relationally hard when you watch people leave or you send people out for the spread of the gospel. Whether it's from your community group. Your community group grows. Start a new one. And now I don't get to do life with these people as much. But it's, a, it's not about me. It's about the spread of the gospel. I, I mean, I think about just very personally... You know, we said uh, 11 years ago was when this church began. And if you are not familiar with the way our church began, to say it was difficult would be quite an understatement. Okay, I describe it a lot of times as a dumpster fire on a train wreck. That's how it began. And I would not have survived that time, or continued in the ministry, if it was not for Pastor John Whitenack, who's on vacation this week, or Pastor Tom Agnew, who was on staff here for for seven and a half years. But then seven and a half years after the start of the church, we sent him out with 40 members of the church who I loved dearly and who served this church passionately, and we sent them out to go plant a new church on the other side of town. Tom's over there preaching right now. And it was a good thing. Good thing. Attempt great things for God, right? That's what we want to do. It's a good thing. But it hurt. I just personally, I literally wept Now, if you were here when we had Tom sending away party or whatever it was, I blubbered like a baby. Why? Because I loved him and I had been in a lot of spiritual foxholes with him. It wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. And so it was a good thing, but it hurt. Living as a good disciple is relationally hard even when it's for good things. But it's also hard because we're going to hurt one another. Like any family, that doesn't mean we just bolt out the door. doesn't mean that we, you know, just leave or grow bitter. It means that you forgive as you've been forgiven. Look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. Can you imagine that? Luke didn't even show up. Now, maybe he was sick, maybe he was out of town, I don't know, but not even Luke was there. But it's like no one from the Church of Rome was there. Verse 21, he he named some people. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, and Linus. Linus is probably the guy who took over as the Bishop of Rome after Peter died. Catholics look to him as the second Pope. And Claudia. And all the brothers, and that word is uh, brothers and sisters. But the point here is like everyone abandoned him. Everybody abandoned him. No one showed up. No one was with him. In one of the deepest, darkest, hardest periods of time in his life. But then look at the end of verse 16. May it not be charged against them. Jesus, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so, even from the life of Paul, though, who's not Jesus, Paul is a sinner, we learn, we see that failing friends, imperfect friends, sinful friends, will let you down, but they can still be your friends. And even long-time hurts can be resolved through the gospel. Because notice verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you. This is a beautiful thing. Because if you will go read the book of Acts, you will see that Paul and John Mark don't hit it off very well. Paul launches off in a missionary journey sets sail. Mark goes with him. They get to the Isles of Cyprus and, and Mark bails. Years later, they're going to go on a second missionary journey. John Mark wants to go with him and Paul's like over my dead body. And it even drives a wedge between Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Silas go off. Barnabas and John Mark go off. But then here we see that at some point that rift Whoever's fault it was has been mended. It's been healed. And he wants to see Mark. And so church, listen to me. Failing friends can still be your friends. Long-term beef can still be resolved. But that's going to depend a great deal on you and whether or not you will forgive as you've been forgiven. And how have you been forgiven? Is it on the basis of deserving that forgiveness? No. So why do we treat people that way? I'll forgive you if if you deserve it enough. I'll forgive you if you do enough penance. I'll forgive you if I feel like I've sufficiently punished you enough. I'll forgive you if you look sad enough. I'll forgive you only if you apologize. Does Jesus do that with you? No. And so because you've been freely forgiven, you forgive freely. Eric Wright puts it like this. A forgiving person is one who, out of a profound sense of being personally forgiven, a great debt by God, is quick to ask forgiveness from another, who repudiates anger, bitterness, and a desire for revenge to initiate a loving approach to whomever may have hurt him or her, and who offers to freely forgive and call to memory no more the injury caused with the hope that reconciliation may be achieved. Because straight up, it takes two people to reconcile. It does. But it only takes one person to forgive. And this doesn't mean there might not be consequences to someone's actions. Someone may need to go to jail for what they did. You may need to call the cops on someone for what they did. It was illegal. It was criminal. It was awful. But we can still forgive them even as we call the cops. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, we pray. And so who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? What did they do? What did they say? What did they fail to do? Maybe they didn't show up to something. And I'm not, I am under no illusion that this is easy or simple. As a pastor, I often get a front row seat to the most painful moments in people's lives. So I understand that this is difficult and this is hard. But who do you need to forgive? Maybe it's someone who's even passed away, but what they did is still haunting you from the grave and you need to forgive them. and so we're going to take a second you can close your eyes for a minute some of you may already have them closed but there's a different reason (laughs) but we're going to close our eyes for just a second and I want you to think like right now in your life who do you have anger towards who are you bitter at who has done you wrong Or maybe you've been judgmental. You've assumed wrong motives. You've cast people's actions in the worst possible light. You've been quick to criticize, but slow to listen. Quick to take offense, but slow to forgive. So, what do you need to repent of? As well as, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to apologize to? And so I'm going to be quiet for about 30 seconds. Ask for the Lord's help to forgive. You open your eyes. Friends, the grace that flows into our life is to be the same grace that flows out. We've been freely forgiven. We are to freely forgive. And so as a good disciple, your life will be relationally hard. We want to know that. Eyes wide open. But despite the relational hardness, you must have true friends. Must have. Not optional. And that's number two this morning. As a good disciple, you must have true friends. You must have true friends. I'm going to pick up the pace now. But just, I mean, just this, these 14 verses we read, look at how many people Paul names. And there's a couple who did, you know, I mean, Demas left, and then everyone abandoned him, but he still, he loves these people. These are his friends. He's for them. He's sending greetings out. You look at all of his letters. And greet this person. Greet this person. You must have true friends. And like, and like i talked about, we're going to get to verse 17 where it talks about, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Even though everyone else failed, the Lord did that. But that doesn't mean that like, if you have Jesus, that's all you need. Jesus created us in such a way that we need one another. We are a body. A hand can't exist as well as it could without a foot. An eye needs an ear. All these things, these metaphors. As, John Piper put it like this, Jesus never intended that the enjoyment of his presence would replace the enjoyment of the presence of other Christians. Christ did not die to create isolated, worshipping individuals. He died to create Christ-exalting friendships. That is, he died and rose again to create the church. And folks, while true friendships that go beyond just talking about the weather can be relationally hard, you can't live as a good disciple without them. Uh, I've already talked about John and Tom, right? Now Pastor Chad and the elders, and we're, we're growing in our friendship. We are friends, but in the depth of friendship like we're describing here, we're, we're growing in that. It takes time. But I literally would not be in the ministry anymore if it was not for John and Tom, if I did not have them in my life. Some of you last week met my friend Dan. He was here. He was my college roommate for five years. It's okay to go to college for five years. I redshirted. But I would not have seen the error of my ways and the hypocrisy of my life if it was not for him. And goodness gracious, where would I be without Sarah? She's been my best friend for 19 years now. For you, it may be a cousin. For you, it may be a next door neighbor. It definitely should be members of the church for sure. But the bottom line is you can't live as a good disciple without true friends who you love and who love you and who you know and who know the real you and have authority to speak into your life and say, bro, no. And say, or say, good job. Come on, come on, let's go. As good disciples, you must have true friends. That's that's number two. Got to. Keep going. We've got two more. Number three. As good disciples, you'll never outgrow your need for God's Word. As good disciples, you'll never outgrow your need for God's Word. Look at verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. All right. He wants the cloak because he's cold. He wants the books and the parchment because he wants to know God. All right? The parchments are almost certainly the Old Testament. The books We don't know what they are. Very likely they're like his notes, his journaling notes as he's studying the Bible. Maybe they're sermons that he's prepared. Maybe they're portions of letters he's written. We don't know. But we do know that this saintly man who wrote a major part of the New Testament, as he approaches death, what does he want? God's Word. Because he wants to know God. God. And we cannot know God outside of His Word. And so no matter how long you walk with the Lord, no matter how long you live, no matter if you are the Apostle Paul himself, you will never get to a place where you no longer need God's Word. I mean, whether it's written or you have it memorized or, or, or what, you, you need God's Word. Thousands of years, people were illiterate, but they needed to hear God's Word. You never get to a place where you don't need God's Word. And it's only through God's Word where we can come to understand the glorious truth that is number four. That no matter what the authorities do to you, no matter what your friends do to you, no matter what circumstances befall your life, no matter how isolated, deserted, lonely, or alone you feel, number four, as a good disciple, you are never alone. You are never alone. This is the main point of this final, you know, personal instructions, greetings. Look at verse 16 again. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might, he might hear it. He, he went to Rome. He preached before courts. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. His first trial, that initial hearing, he didn't, he was rescued. Verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever amen again he knows he's going to die and for believers this is not for all people for believers in christ absent from the body present with the lord for non-believers absent from the body present in torment But verse 17 again, this is what I want to camp out. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I mean, again, Paul's sitting in a dungeon beneath the streets of Rome. He's all alone. He's about to be executed. And what is his only source of comfort? That the Lord is with me. No matter how dark, no matter how difficult, no matter how trying the circumstances may be, the Lord is with me. And friends, He's with you as well, if you are in Christ, if you have repented and believed truly, not just verbally, like truly. Now, we are definitely not in Paul's position. Praise God, right? It's not going on in our life. But many of us are in the midst of trials, midst of tribulations. Cloud has descended upon your hearts. And the reassurance that is yours in the midst of the unfolding providence of God is the same as it was for the Apostle Paul. That the Lord is with you. And he will strengthen you and he will enable you just as he did the Apostle Paul. And so this morning I want to hammer that home to you. Christ is with you. In the midst of whatever you're going on, God stands God stands with you. Omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, eternal, in control of all things, sovereign over all things, creator, giver and sustainer of life. God is with you. As we read about in Psalm 139 earlier, Steve read, there's no place we can go in time or space where he's not already there. He's omnipresent. That means even across time. He's outside of time. He's not bound by it. God's bound by nothing. He's outside of time. And so it's not just that God knows what's going to happen someday. He's already there loving us then and preparing us now for it. And so for those of you who maybe are anxious this morning, something's going on in your life, maybe you're dominated by fear, Listen to me, God stands with you. Not a sparrow falls without him knowing about it. He controls it. And if you are a Christian and you, then you're saying, I trust Jesus with my eternity. Why then would you not trust him with your present? And it doesn't mean things are going to go hunky-dory. I mean, Paul is in prison. He did get beaten a lot. He did get thrown out a lot, right? He's not living his best life now. If you're living your best life now, you're probably headed for hell. And so it doesn't mean we'll necessarily be removed from suffering, but it does mean we'll be cared for, provided, comforted, given peace, and loved in the midst of our suffering. God's love is steadfast towards you. He never takes a day off. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He doesn't have to. He doesn't get tired. And in all things, He's doing something. In all things. Things don't just happen. God is working in all things even if we mere mortals don't get it. I mean, Romans 8. God is you know, working all things out for the good of those who love Christ Jesus. You keep going in Romans 8 and you get down to where we see that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus. Not life, not death, not angels, not demons. Nothing's going to be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Now, think if we believed that and lived like it. It would revolutionize my life, your life, everyone's life. That no matter what comes into my life, I understand God knew it was coming. And no matter what comes into my life, I understood that God had in His loving providence begun to prepare me for it. And no matter what comes into my life, God stands with me. And it will not sever me from Him. That's an impossibility. And so, Christian, be comforted this morning, even in the midst of your suffering, that Christ stands with you he never takes a leave of absence he never calls time out he never needs a day off he stands with you day in day out you are never alone ever christ is with you And He will hold you fast. Because you know what? That's part of His job description. Let's pray. Lord... Again, there's almost no words to describe adequately. I mean, there aren't. The love that you have for your own. And for those you have called, for those you have regenerated and redeemed and saved. By grace. Not deserved. Because we don't. We can't. You're too holy. But by grace. And so, Father, I just pray for us as a congregation that when we go through suffering, cause we will, and when we go through relational difficulty, cause we will, that we would remember that you are with us. It's Psalm 23 that you comfort us and you guide us with your rod and your staff. that you don't disappear. You hold us and uphold us and carry us. And in all our sorrows, you are better. In all our victories, you are better. In all our comforts, you are greater. You are better. So, Father, help us to long for you and your greatness and your majesty, not for temporary, short-lived comfort of this life. Fill us with hope because you stand with us. Assurance because you stand with us. And what is the worst that anyone can do do to us? They cannot sever us from your love and your mercy and your grace. They cannot take that from us. Encourage us this morning by your Spirit, even as we sing, in Jesus' name.